All right. <clears throat> so I have handwritten notes uh, tonight because I couldn't get in the office and I have my key. My sister's a thief. Um, but I only have two lines of notes because we're going to watch a movie. And uh, <clears throat> it's kind of like when a substitute teacher you know, comes to class, so we're going to do that. But I want to preface the movie before we watch it. So when, um, in 2007, when we were really pressing the Lord for something um, more than what we had, and um, we received this DVD, and actually it showed up in the mail. We had no idea who sent it to us, Um, still don't. But it was from an event that happened on uh, July 7th, 2007. And it happened at a thing called Leap of Faith Lambo. They had a big thing at uh, Lambeau Field. And they played this video there. <clears throat> so we got it in the mail. And, you know, you get stuff mailed to you at a church all the time. And we're kind of like, eh, not so sure about this. And we ended up watching it. And um, at least, well, I guess I can speak for myself and for Pastor. We were so deeply convicted um, that it was, it was hard to not be offended because of, like, the depth of what it revealed. And um, so I have known that we are going to watch this again for quite a while. And I've been praying about it for over a year, when's the right time. And I never felt a release until... Um, after Cody shared with me some of the stuff that went on last Thursday, and I felt like the Lord said, now's the time. Um, And I tell you that because it's it's convicting. It uh, it deals with issues of the heart more deeply and thoroughly than probably anything else I've ever come across. Um, Issues that they'll describe in there, such... uh, such as like what, what would be referred to as humanism, in other words, confusing the second commandment and the first, where, you know, it's um, we love our neighbor before we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the effect that that has if it's not righted. Um, I th- didn't I show you some of this? Yeah. And, um, and then it, it deals with other issues like... Um, the true dealing with of the heart as it pertains to Jesus, you are, you're, you are, you are it. You are the end of all things. You are the Lord. Uh, and we know all those things doctrinally, theologically, and we believe them. But when God starts to address these issues of the heart, and, and now I have to live them, it's really hard. And so... <clears throat> I was really loath in some ways to watch this because I didn't, I knew there was going to be a great measure of conviction and I didn't want there to be undue offense if it could be avoided in any way because um, it is very difficult to watch and not take offense but rather to respond with repentance to the conviction. And so that's, you know, our... <clears throat> As we're born of God, we develop and cultivate a spirit of repentance. And a spirit of repentance just means that we're easier for God to deal with when he wants to correct and convict. 
But when we start out walking with God, we don't have that cultivated spirit of repentance most of the time. There's not a whole lot of brokenness that we usually have when we first come to the Lord. So when conviction comes, often it's met with offense from us rather than repentance. And I know this because I experienced it. I lived with a spirit of offense toward God for a long time because he was wanting to deal with issues and take me in directions that I didn't want to go. And this video, I'm, I'm, I watched it dozens of times. Um, and virtually every time I've watched it, I was just so convicted over the condition of my own heart, the selfishness. And, um, but I also know that when we watched it the first time around, we lost a lot of people to, to offense that just were not willing to look at these issues in their own heart and allow God to deal with them. So after at least a year of praying and asking the Lord, what's the right time for this? Um, I feel like this is the time. And so we're going to watch it here. It's 25 minutes long. We're going to watch do the same thing tomorrow night. Um, and uh, so it's not just for you guys. And, uh, and then I'll share a little bit after it's done. Jesus Christ is largely sleeping like a great bedroom. And you have all the Christians in bed and they're all sleeping. And they're saying, please, don't wake me up. I want to sleep off. And of course, when God starts to operate a revival, people cannot sleep. You can't sleep in church. But the Spirit of God awakes the people. Look at the first verse of this 52nd chapter. Awake! Awake! Put on strength! Wake it up, you sleepy Christians! Awake, all that sleepers! Arise from the dead! Christ will give you life! Keep this in mind from an old man. There is no finality to the Christian life this side of eternity. We pray that some of us may go to our own funeral tonight and die to self and end all the failure and all the weakness. Why should a person come to the cross? Why should a person embrace death? Why should a person be willing to go in identification down to the cross and into the tomb and up again? I'll tell you why. Because it's the only way that God can get glory out of a human being. If I were to ask you tonight, you're saved. Do you say, yes, I'm saved? When? Oh, so-and-so preached, I got baptized. And are you saved? What are you saved from? Hell? Are you saved from bitterness? Are you saved from lust? Are you saved from cheating? Are you saved from lying? Are you saved from bad manners? Are you saved from rebelling against your parents? Come on, what are you saved from? Who shall ascend the hill of God? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, 
he shall receive the blessing of the Lord. And there's no room for him in the inn. He got a bit older, there was no room in his family. His family turned on him. He went to the temple, no room in the temple, the temple turned on him. And when he died, there was no room to bury him. He died outside of the city. Well, why in God's name do you expect to be accepted everywhere? How is it the world couldn't get on with the holiest man that ever lived and it can get on with you and me? Are we compromised? Are we compromised? Are we no spiritual stature? Are we no righteousness that reflects on their corruption? Jesus from above is above all. You want to say to your Christians, don't go around apologizing for him. Don't go around worried because you can't make his doctrines fit in with what you've learned in school. All you learned in school was one fallen head instructing another fallen head. And you don't have to apologize for him. But as dear Dr. Tozer used to say, Len, you knew one thing about a man that was carrying a cross out of the city. You knew he wasn't coming back. Just come to an altar and we go back the next week and we're as fascinated. We haven't spent half an hour with Jesus, but we'll stay two stinking hours in a movie house. And Paul says that's what the world is to me. It's a system of corruption and rottenness and vileness. It's anti-Christ from the world go. Is the world crucified to you tonight or does it fascinate you? Do we not need a very much greater conception of how tremendously valuable a true expression of the church is to the Lord? It's priceless. But the Lord give us more of this anguish for his church as a whole. It will be precious to him. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then it vanisheth. That world Away. outside there is not waiting for a new definition of Christianity, it's waiting for a new demonstration of Christianity. Would I be out of line in order if I were to talk to you for a little while about utilitarian religion, and expedient Christianity? And the question that you're going to ask yourself is, is God an end, or is he a means? And you have to decide very early in your Christian life whether you're viewing God as an end or a means. A more challenging question than this text. What is your life? The philosophy of the day became humanism. And you can define humanism this way. Humanism is a philosophical statement that declares the end of all being is the happiness of man. The, the reason for existence is man's happiness. Now according to humanism, salvation is simply a matter of getting all the happiness you can out of life. This group of my people, the fundamentalists, that say that we believe in the inspiration of the Bible. We believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. We believe in hell. We believe in heaven. We believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But remember, the atmosphere is that of humanism. And humanism says the chief end of being is the happiness of man. And so it wasn't long until we had this that the fundamentalists knew each other because they said we believe these things. They were men for the most part that had met God. But you see, it wasn't long until, having said, these are the things that establish us as fundamentalists, the second generation said, this is how we become a fundamentalist. Believe in the inspiration of the Bible, believe in the deity of Christ, believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, and thereby become a fundamentalist. And so it wasn't long until it got to our generation, where the whole plan of salvation was to give intellectual assent to a few statements of doctrine. And a person was considered a Christian because he could say, uh-huh, 
at four or five places that he was asked to. And if he knew where to say, uh-huh, someone would pat him on the back, shake his hand, smile broadly, and say, brother, you're safe. At what cost? And so it had gotten down to the place where salvation was nothing more than an ascent to a scheme or a, a formula. And the end of this salvation was the happiness of man, because humanism has penetrated. And so if you were to analyze the fundamentalism in contrast to liberalism of a hundred years ago as it developed, be like this. The liberal says the end of religion is to make man happy while he's alive. And the fundamentalist says the end of religion is to make man happy when he dies. We're still paddling on the edge of the ocean and the possibilities of grace put a holy dissatisfaction in us tonight. Until we find it something like this. Re accept Jesus so you can go to heaven. You don't want to go to that old, filthy, nasty, burning hell when there's a beautiful heaven up there. Now come to Jesus so that you can go to heaven. And the appeal could be as much to selfishness as a couple of men sitting in a coffee shop deciding they're going to rag, rob a bank to get something for nothing. It becomes so subtle that it goes everywhere. What is it? In essence, it's this. That this philosophical postulate that the end of all being is the happiness of man has been a sort of covered over with evangelical terms and biblical doctrine until God reigns in heaven for the happiness of man, Jesus Christ was incarnate for the happiness of man, all the angels exist in the whole, everything is for the happiness of man, and I submit to you that this is unchristian. Christianity says the end of all being is the glory of God. Humanism says the end of all being is the happiness of man. This is the betrayal of the ages! And it's the betrayal in which we live, and I don't see how God can revive it! Until we come back to Christianity. Isn't man happy? Didn't God intend to make man happy? But as a byproduct, and not a prime product. Now I ask you, what is the philosophy of missions? What is the philosophy of evangelism? What is the philosophy of a Christian? If you'll ask me why I went to Africa, I'll tell you I went primarily to improve on the justice of God. I didn't think it was right for anybody to go to hell without a chance to be saved. And so I went to give poor sinners a chance to go to heaven. Now, I hadn't put it in so many words, but if you'll analyze what I've just told you, do you know what it is? It's humanism. That I was simply using the provisions of Jesus Christ as a means to improve upon human conditions of suffering and misery. And when I got to Africa, I discovered that they weren't poor, ignorant little heathen running around in the woods waiting for, looking for someone to tell them how to go to heaven. That they were monsters of iniquity. They were living in utter and total defiance of far more knowledge of God than I ever dreamed they had. They deserved hell because they utterly refused to walk in the light of their conscience and the light of the law written upon their heart and the testimony of nature and the truth they knew. And when I found that out, I assure you, I was so angry with God that one occasion in prayer I told him that it was a, a mighty little thing he'd done 
sending me out there to reach these people that were waiting to be told how to go to heaven. When I got there, I found out they knew about heaven and didn't want to go there. And they were loved their sin and wanted to stay in it. I went out there motivated by humanism. I'd seen pictures of lepers. I'd seen pictures of ulcers. I'd seen pictures of native funerals. And I didn't want my fellow human beings to suffer in hell eternally after such a miserable existence on earth. But it was there in Africa that God began to tear through the overlay of this humanism. And it was that day in my bedroom with the door locked that I wrestled with God. For here was, was I was coming to grips with the fact that the people that I thought were ignorant and wanted to know how to go to heaven and were saying, someone come and teach us, actually didn't want to take time to talk with me or anybody else. They had no interest in the Bible and no interest in Christ. And they loved their sin and wanted to continue in it. And I was to the place at that time where I felt the whole thing was a sham and a mockery and I'd been sold a bill of goods. And I wanted to come home. And there alone in my bedroom, as I faced God honestly with what my heart felt, it seemed to me I heard him say, Yes, will not the judge of all the earth do right? The heathen are lost. And they're going to go to hell, not because they haven't heard the gospel. They're going to go to hell because they are sinners who love their sin. And because they deserve hell. But I didn't send you out there for them. I didn't send you out there for their sake. And I heard as clearly as I've ever heard, though it wasn't with physical voice, but it was the echo of truth of the ages finding its way into an open heart. I heard God say to my heart that day something like this. I didn't send you to Africa for the sake of the heathen. I sent you to Africa for my sake. They deserve hell, but I love them. And I endured the agonies of hell for them. I didn't send you out there for them. I sent you out there for me. Do I not deserve the reward of my suffering? Don't I deserve those for whom I die? And it reversed it all, it changed it all, it righted it all. And I wasn't any longer working for my cup in ten shekels in a shire, but I was serving the living God. The more longer I live, the more I find I don't know. Two years ago, God gave me a word for the new year. I don't go scattering through the book to find one. The, the Lord gave me a word, rejection. Great. Why did you repent? I'd like to see some people repent on biblical terms again. You see the difference? You see the difference? The difference is here's somebody trembling because he's going to be hurt in hell. And he has no sense of the enormity of his guilt, and no sense of the enormity of his crime, and no sense of his insult against deity. He's only trembling because his skin is about to be singed. And this is the difference between 20th century preaching and the preaching of John Wesley. Wesley was a preacher of righteousness that exalted the holiness of God. 
And when he would stand there with the two to three hour sermons that he was accustomed to deliver in the open air, and he would exalt the holiness of God and the law of God and the righteousness of God and the justice of God and the wisdom of his requirements and the, the justice of his wrath and his anger, and then he would turn to sinners and tell them of the enormity of their crimes and their open rebellion and the treason and their anarchy, the power of God would so descend upon the company that on one occasion it is reliably reported that when the people dispersed there were 1,800 people lying on the ground utterly unconscious because they'd had a revelation of the holiness of God and in the light of that they'd seen the enormity of their sin. God had so penetrated their minds and hearts that they had fallen to the ground. It wasn't trying to convince good man that he was in trouble with a bad God, but that it was to convince bad men that they deserved the wrath and anger of a good God. Anything that you love more than you love Jesus Christ is an idol. Don't care what it is. I'm embarrassed to be part of the Church of Jesus Christ tonight, which is so totally radically different from the New Testament. So impoverished, so blind, so powerless. I've come to this conclusion. There is a move of God in America today, but not amongst the unsaved. It's amongst the redeemed who are determined by the grace of God to be part of the bride. And to be part of the bride, you have to be divorced from everything in the world. We haven't witnessed of somebody who's going to an eternal hell according to our theology, but we talked about some tribute to them. Whisper in my ear that Satan has moved you up. He says you're getting to be dangerous to his kingdom. He says you're spoiling his plans. You're thwarting his purposes. You're pulling down his strongholds. We're not pulling things out. We're building pretty little churches and little rooms for people to sit around. If Jesus came back, he wouldn't cleanse the temple. He cleansed the pulpit. We're in grave danger when we let our accomplishments become the ground of our confidence. Oh boy, how we want to be esteemed. How we want to be respected. How people should realize what precious gifts of the Spirit I've given do you know why they don't? Because you stink with pride, that's why. John died in 1791, converted at 35, turn that round it makes 53, add them together it makes 88. Because he was saved at 35, preached for 53 years, and you know what he left when he died? He left a handful of books, a shaded Geneva gown that he preached in all over England, six silver spoons somebody gave him, six pound notes, give one to each of the poor men that carry me to my grave, and that's all he left, six pound notes, six silver spoons, a handful of books, a Geneva gown, and uh, something else, what was it, the other thing, oh, I know something else he left, the Methodist church. He could have died as rich as your famous TV uh, preacher Sunday. Sure he made money, and he built orphanages. Sure he made money, he printed Bibles. Sure he made money, he compiled with Charles the Methodist hymn book. And they built orphanages. And he died worth about $30. He printed Bibles, he printed hymn books. He financed missionaries to go across the earth. That's the way to use your money. You think of the reward. Why in God's name do you think it says don't lay up treasure enough? Lay up treasure in heaven. I'm tired of writing about revival. I'm tired of reading about revival. There are more lost people in the world tonight than ever in the history of the world. 
And God wants some men who are really drunk, intoxicated with the Spirit of God, who have a love life with the Lord Jesus, that He can ask anything of you and He'll do it. I have talked with people that have no assurance of sins forgiven. They want to feel saved before they're willing to commit themselves to Christ. But I believe that the only ones whom God actually witnesses by His Spirit are born of Him are the people, whether they say it or not, that come to Jesus Christ and say something like this, Lord Jesus, I'm going to obey you and love you and serve you and do what you want me to do as long as I live, even if I go to hell at the end of the road, simply because you are worthy to be loved and obeyed and served and I'm not trying to make a deal with you. But oh, I know so many people that are trying to know the fullness of God so that they can use God. A young preacher came to me down in West Virginia, Huntington, West Virginia. Brother <laughs> Reader, I've got a great church. We've got a wonderful Sunday school program. We've got a radio ministry growing. But I feel a personal need and a personal lack. I need to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. I need to be filled with the Spirit. And someone told me God done something for you. And I wonder if you could help me. <laughs> I looked at the fellow. You know what he looked like? me just looked like me I just saw in him everything that was in me you thought I was going to say me before no listen dear heart if you've ever seen yourself you'll know that you're never going to be anything else than you were for in me and my flesh there's no good thing look like me he was like a fellow driving up in a big Cadillac you know to someone standing at the filling station say pull up bud with the highest octane you got well, that's the way it looked. He wanted power for his program. And God is not going to be a means to anyone's end. I said, I'm awfully sorry. I don't think I can help you. He said, why? I don't think you're ready. I said, well, suppose you consider yourself coming up with a Cadillac. You've talked about your program. You've talked about your radio. You've talked about your Sunday school and church. It's very good. You've done wonderfully well without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Chinese Christian said, you know, when he got back to China. What impressed you most about America? He said, the great things Americans can accomplish without God. And he'd accomplished a great deal, admittedly, without God. Now he wanted something, power, to accomplish his ends even further. I said, no, no. You're, going, you're sitting behind the wheel and you're saying to God, give me power so I can go. You won't work, you've got to slide over. But I knew that, rascal, because I knew me. I said, no, it'll never do. You've got to get in the back seat. I could see him leaning over and grabbing the wheel. No, I said, he'll never do in the back seat. I said, before God will do anything for you, you know what you've got to do? He said, what? I said, you've got to get out of the car, take the keys around, open up the trunk lid, hand the keys to the Lord Jesus, get inside the trunk, slam the lid down, whisper through the keyhole, Lord, look, fill her up with anything you want and you drive. It's up to you from now on. And that's why so many people, you know, do not enter into the fullness of Christ. Because they want to become a Levite with ten shekels and a shirt. They've been serving Micah, but they think if they had the power of the Holy Ghost, they could serve the tribe of Dan. It'll never work. Never work. There's only one reason for God needing you. And that's to bring you to the place where, in repentance... You've been pardoned for his glory. And in victory, you've been brought to the place of death that he might reign. And in his fullness, 
Jesus Christ is able to live and walk in you. And your attitude is the attitude of the Lord himself who said, I can do nothing of myself. I can't speak of myself. I don't make plans for myself. My only reason for being is the glory of God in Jesus Christ. If I were to say to you, come to be saved so you can go to heaven. Come to the cross so that you can have joy and victory. Come to the fullness of the Spirit so that you can be satisfied. I'd be falling into the trap of humanism. I'm going to say to you, dear friend, if you're out here without Christ, you come to Jesus Christ and serve him as long as you live, whether you go to hell at the end of the way, because he's worthy. I say to you, Christian friend, you come to the cross and join him in union and death and enter into all the meaning of death to hell in order that he can have glory. I say to you, dear Christian, if you do not know the fullness of the Holy Ghost, come and present your body a living sacrifice and let him fill you so that he can have the purpose for his coming fulfilled in you and get glory through your life. It's not what you're going to get out of God. It's what he is going to get out of you. Let's be done once and for all with utilitarian Christianity that makes God a means instead of the glorious end that he is. Let's resign. Let's tell Micah we're through. We're no longer going to be his priest serving for ten shekels and a shirt. Let's tell the tribe of Dan we're through. And let's come and cast ourselves at the feet of the nail-pierced Son of God and tell him that we're going to obey him and love him and serve him as long as we live because he is worthy. Two young Moravians heard of an island in the West Indies where an atheist British owner had 2,000 to 3,000 slaves. And the owner had said, no preacher, no clergyman will ever stay on this island. If he's shipwrecked, We'll keep him in a separate house until he has to leave, but he's never going to talk to any of us about God. I'm through with all that nonsense. 3,000 slaves from the jungles of Africa bought to an island in the Atlantic and there to live and die without hearing of Christ. Two young Moravians heard about it. They sold themselves to the British planter and used the money they received from the sale for he paid no more than he would for any slave to pay their passage out to his island for he wouldn't even transport them. And as the ship left the river at Hamburg, left its pier in the river at Hamburg and was going out into the North Sea carried with the tide, the Moravians had come from Hernhut to see these two lads off in the early 20s, never to return again, for this wasn't a four-year term. They'd sold themselves into lifetime slavery, simply that as slaves they could be as Christians where these others were. The families were there weeping, for they knew they'd never see them again. And they wondered why they were going and questioned the wisdom of it. And as the gap widened and the houses had been cast off and were being curled up there on the pier, and the young boys saw the widening gap, one lad with his arm linked through the arm of his fellow raised his hand and shouted across the gap the last words that were heard from them. There were these. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. I had no clue that there was any alternative to the kinds of mission that he refers to as humanistic and wrong because it was the only thing I'd ever known. Um, why else would you share the gospel other than to 
get people out of hell. And it was the beginning of a long process in which this thing had to be killed because it's a reversal where the second commandment is put first and the first commandment is put second. And what happens is it, it leads to what Jesus is addressing in Revelation when he says, you've forsaken your first love. You've become all about ministry and all about a church, but you don't even desire me anymore. And at the core of humanistic mindset is the failure for us to realize that all that Jesus paid for was to know us, that we might be known by him, and that he might be known by us, and that he could transform us into everything that he dreamed of. That's where he gets glory. For his sake, though, not for the sake of others. It's for his sake. What happens for others is the overflow. So it it deals with humanism. It also deals with one of the things in the Psalms that David writes is, a broken and contrite heart you will not reject. If we want to assure that we'll never be rejected by God, having a broken and contrite heart is the foremost gift that we can walk in for the duration of our lives. What's a broken and contrite heart? A repentant heart is the same thing. A broken and contrite heart. A broken and contrite heart does not mean that you walk around with no confidence. A broken and a contrite heart does not mean that you're afraid to try anything because you don't want to fail. That's not a broken and contrite heart. A broken and contrite heart is anytime God convicts you or speaks to you and tells you you need to change, you respond instantly with, yes, Lord, you're right. Anytime you come with an idea and you start to go in a direction, he says, that's not where we're going now. You say, yes, Lord, different direction immediately. A broken and contrite heart is that God asks anything of you and you will do it without hesitation. Unfortunately, I say unfortunately, tongue in cheek, unfortunately, this has to be developed in us. When we're saved, we go from having a completely rebellious heart to being children of God, yeah? We were enemies of God, and he died for us. So while we were yet his enemies, he dies for us. Enemies are rebellious toward God. So we were rebellious in our nature toward God. We get saved, our minds aren't completely righted. There is a great deal of what we think that is not submitted to God. And so he begins a crucifixion process in us in which our rebellious thoughts, our rebellious ways, our rebellious attitudes are crucified. It's like Leonard Ravenhill said, what were you saved from? Hell? Were you saved from bitterness? Were you saved from lust? Were you saved from lying? Were you saved from bad manners? What were you saved from? Our salvation is the beginning of our crucifixion. And that crucifixion is the elimination of our rebellious spirit. And that's a process, and it takes time. A willingness, though, allows it to happen more quickly. How God crucifies a rebellious spirit is by telling you to do something that you do not want to do and then holding you to it while you go through with it. And this is really challenging because it will often even violate wisdom when he tells you to do it like we talked about two or three weeks ago. He said we, we use the principles of wisdom until we have the voice. 
and at times the voice God tells us to violate wisdom and obey him. And the only way that a rebellious spirit is crucified is by telling you to do something you do not want to do, and you do it anyway just because he said so, just because he's worthy. I look at Jesus' crucifixion, and and in contrast to some of my own crucifixion, my crucifixion, I believe, was dragged out much longer than it needed to be because I was rebellious in the crucifixion of my rebellion, Um, very stubborn, I, um, I did not want to let him do what he wanted me to do. And, uh, you know, some of my friends got to see this process a little bit more intimately than others. But what I looked at when I looked at the crucifixion of Jesus, do you guys remember they were really surprised that he was already dead? Do you remember that? They were really surprised that he had died. But right before that in the garden, Jesus says to the Father, if this be your will, but... Otherwise, you know, take this cup from me. And the Father says, no, this is my will. Jesus then wholeheartedly throws himself into his own crucifixion. So much so that they were surprised that he had died so quickly. Because the human spirit, the human will resists death. It's our nature to resist death. And the human will is very, very powerful. And here Jesus cooperated to such a degree with the Father that his crucifixion and death came sooner than anyone anticipated. And that's why they stuck the spear into his side, was to ensure that he was actually dead. Crucifixion is a painful process. There's no other way around it. It is not easy, and it's not intended to be. Because in crucifixion is where our hearts are finally positioned right before God, where we submit to him because he is worthy, because he is Lord, because he is God, because he said so. If this does not take place in our lives, we never will enter into the fullness of what he has for us. In addition to that, if you remember Jesus preaching, he says, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, Look at the things that we did in your name. You gave us power. We had your spirit. Look at the things that we did in your name. We prophesied. We cast out demons. And he says, I don't know you. Only those who enter in are those who do my Father's will. In other words, it's not the ones who go around doing miracles in ministry because that's what they want to do. It's the ones who maybe never did a miracle, but they did what my father asked them to do their whole lives. This is the central issue that is not taking place in most of the American church today, is that we live for Christ, by Christ. That's it. If we do that, the overflow of it is abundance of life. We walk in the fullness of the Spirit of God. But if not, we don't. And so the reason that we're looking at this now is um, prophetically, circumstantially, in the Word, um, there are so many different things in the last six weeks that have been leading to this point that I believe that God is trying to reposition our hearts correctly, that we can seek Him appropriately that we can ask him for the right reasons, but that first and foremost, we're a people 
of a broken and contrite heart. That God would bring anything to us, we would repent. That's how we can truly honor God. We honor one another, but there is a higher honor, and it's the honoring of God. And the honoring of God takes place when he asks us to do something that we do not want to do, and we do it anyway. That's the only way that a heart of submissiveness before the Lord can be formed. I'll share what some of what I went through during this process. I resisted it horrifically. Um, I tried some different ministry things. We had some cool opportunities. Got invited into a school in Republic um, to share testimony. So we went, shared a lot of stuff, got to hang out with some kids and pray. And they started coming to this after-school thing that we were doing out there once a week. And it went really well for like a, a month. And then the, the kids, the athletes, got into sports and they stopped coming. And pretty soon it was just like a couple of... Um, Oh, there's a couple stinky kids. And that was the only, there's two kids showing up, and that's it. And so we're like, this is horrible. Why are we here? You know, and we kept going with these kids. And then these kids quit showing up. We weren't cool enough uh, for them to come hang out with us. And nobody's there. In the first week, no one's there. We show up, and the Lord's like, I told you to do this. Pray. And we pray, you know, for three hours. Just sat and prayed for these kids, for the school. Nobody's there. Next week, we show up again. Nobody's there. Stay and pray again. The third time we come, the building is frozen up. Somebody forgot to pay the heat bill. And the building is completely frozen. It's like 34, 32, 34 degrees in there. Um, We're freezing cold, and we're like, this is done. And the Lord says, I told you to be here every Thursday night or Wednesday night. What do, you, what do you think you're doing leaving? God, there's no kids here. What other reason are we here than for these kids? And as clear as I remember Ed saying, he just stopped and he turned and looked at me and said, we're not here for these kids. We're here because God told us to be here. This is why we're doing what we're doing. And that was the first ministry experience where God ever started to write that thought in my head that we don't do ministry for people primarily. We do ministry for God. And then personally, I was in a, I was in a work situation that I didn't enjoy. Um, and I, I resisted God. I did not want to die. Um, I, was a, I was a slow dyer. And in this, in this process, I'm, I'm doing it. I was obedient, but I was resistant. It was not, fine, God. Let's do this. This is where I'm going to be. I worked hard. I was excellent in, in everything that I did. I applied myself, etc., etc. But in my heart, I was not embracing what God was having me do. I was angry with him. I was frustrated that he would have me do this. Why, God? I want the promises. I want to get through this. And I remember talking with Ryan at one point that God was really taking me through it. And uh, I started to realize I was going to die here. And I remember telling him, I think I'm going to die here. I think I'm going to spend my whole life here. And I'm going to die here. And I had, 
I was, every dream, every prophetic word that God had given me, they're, they were dying. They were going away. One after the other after the other. I'm like, you said these things. You, you said you wanted to do these things. Why? Why are we still here? And I remember over the course of about four months after I'd realized that I was supposed to die here, I finally came to the place. I tried to buy this business because I was like, if I'm going to die here, at least I'm going to make a little bit more coin. You know, nine bucks an hour just ain't getting it done. Um, so I'm going to try to buy this business and I'll die here with a little extra cash flow. And, um, that did not work out. And so that whole deal just went down the tubes and I'm suddenly being confronted with either I'm going to die here or I'm going to have to walk away from God. And so I finally just said, okay, Lord, I will die here. I will die here. I will, this will be it. This will be where I spend the rest of my life. And I concluded that in my heart. And I died. I didn't know it. I truly believed that I would never leave there my entire life. And I died. I, tr- I truly died. And I was there for another six months. It was the happiest six months that I ever had there. <laughs> I, I, I had the happiest six months I ever had there, and I thought that I was going to spend the rest of my life there. Why? Because for the first time, since I'd been there, I was doing it for the right reason. I was doing it because that's what he said to do. And that was, all I, that was all that mattered. That was all that I cared about. Six months later, he's like, okay, you can go. <gasps> Are you kidding me? This is the best news ever. And then began a new... Um, a new season... harder for me to talk about a good season than a bad one. Um, but what started was a resurrection. And uh, I didn't know that. You know, I, I knew uh, about the crucifixion because, you know, we all know that we're supposed to be crucified with Christ, but I didn't know that there's a resurrection that follows it. It was pretty cool. Um, and uh, today, actually, is a two-year anniversary for me. <laughs> Cody, I think you did this. <laughs> today is a two-year anniversary um, <laughs> from when my resurrection started. It's a two-year anniversary um, that I've been in this, a new job, and uh, it's, those two seasons have correlated. And it's been really cool. And just a little story. Um, today, I had, uh, I had my repentant heart tested um, with, with one of our own. Um, I had to apologize to Anna Reynolds today. Um, because I totally miscommunicated something to her and put her in a very uncomfortable situation. And, uh, and the Lord was like, you got you to gotta apologize. So, you know, um, my boss and I, we brought her in there and I had to, I'd apologize because I kind of 
totally miscommunicated uh, something that, and the Lord was like, I just, I have to continue to test your heart. And I need to know uh, that just because you're in a new season that you don't lose um, a repentant heart. And that when I correct you, you'll respond and, and receive it. So um, I got to, I got to apologize this morning. That was, that was fun. Um, she graciously accepted my apology, apology, which I appreciate. Um, but I tell you that because we, at times, we look at the crucifixion with Christ, and it seems like that's the end of the road. But to every crucifixion, there's a resurrection. But there is no resurrection without a crucifixion. There is no new life. There is no fullness of life in Christ without a death to the rebelliousness with which we come into this relationship. We do receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit at the outset, but we don't experience it because our minds are not renewed and the rebellion of our minds needs to be changed, needs to be crucified. And as that takes place, we become more like Christ. We're transformed from glory to glory as we behold him. So, I think, I don't think, God is taking us into a season where there's going to be a great deal of repentance for us as a people. Our rebellion is going to be crucified as a group. He is going to write our hearts with Christ seated as the Lord of glory. And he's going to position our hearts such that all that we do, we do for him and him alone. As that's made right in us, we start to walk in wholeness, and then we're actually able to love people like we need to. Until then, we can't. And so God is taking us into a time in which we're going to start to experience things of God that we haven't before, and they're largely going to involve our repentance. So I'm going to pray. Uh, Jared's going to put some music on. Um, Don't be in a hurry to get away when he's moving your heart or he's bringing conviction, whatever the night it is. If it's Saturday night, if it's Sunday morning, if it's Wednesday night, if it's Monday night, if it's Thursday night. When we're in a season like this and God's, he's bringing conviction and he's starting to work on issues in us, the worst thing you can do is rush away from that and not allow him to bring the fullness of conviction in you that you can truly repent. If we don't truly repent, like he said, repent on biblical terms again, if we don't do that, we never experience forgiveness, healing, and wholeness, which is what he paid for us to have. So we're cooperating with grace when we repent, and the development of a repentant heart will serve us throughout our days. So whatever God's doing in you tonight, that's totally between you and God. I'm not going to ask you to come up. Um, but please don't leave his presence when he's moving on your heart. If it's tonight or in the next six months, let him work out the fullness of what he wants to work out in you. That you could become what he dreamt, what he died for you to be. It's for his sake that we must enter into repentance and become what he, what he desires of us. So, Father, Father, thank you. Thank you that you are committed 
to our crucifixion. Thank you that you are more committed to us than we are to you. Thank you that you love us when we don't love you. That you pull us when we push against you. That you help us when we rebel against you. Thank you that you're more committed to us than we are to you. Thank you that you are faithful. You who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. So Father, write our hearts. Write our hearts. Root out the disease of humanism, of rebellion, and selfish gain. Purge our hearts of selfish ambition that all that we would do, we would do for you. Lead us to our own funeral tonight. Father, I thank you that you've chosen us for this course. That the most painful crucifixion is far more beautiful, glorious, and pleasurable than an experience and an existence without you. Father, that a crucifixion with you by our sides is far greater than a life of blessing without you. So cause us during this season to turn toward you, to press into you, even in anger, even in frustration. But Lord, cause us to be obedient to you, to do the thing that you've told us to do, that we're resistant against, that we don't want to do, that we don't understand. Cause us to be obedient to you and lean into you as we do it. Give us grace to be willing as we go to our own grave. We want to taste the fruit of the resurrection, but we know we cannot get there without first taking up our cross and being crucified with you. We love you. We love you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Amen.